Good morning, Calvary. I invite you to keep your Bible open, would you? And let's, uh, let's ask for God's grace and blessing. Pray with me, will you? Father, we pray that uh, you would, out of your kindness, do for us this morning and this hour what we cannot do for ourselves, which is nourish our own souls spiritually, which is enlighten the eyes of our heart to see the riches of our inheritance in Jesus. which is to be quickened and to enjoy intensified communion with you, Lord Jesus. We cannot for ourselves accomplish any of these things. We depend entirely upon you, and so we cast ourselves upon you asking for your grace, your generosity, your kindness, and your mercy may Our worshiping together this morning truly be a seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. May we trust that all these things will be added unto us as we do that very thing. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage of scripture that was just read for us, you see Jesus speaks forcefully, I would say, forcefully to what is a universal human experience. It's one you and I know very well. It's an experience we all deal with. It's one with which we're all familiar, and it's one from which no one in the room this morning is exempt. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount speaking to the issue of anxiety. And I suspect I don't need to define or explain what anxiety is to clue anyone into the experience we call anxiety. We all know what anxiety is. It's that gnawing feeling you have somewhere in your gut that things aren't going to work out the way you hope they will. It's that sense of uncertainty about the present or the future, it's that unsettling feeling that all is not well in the world, or it's that worry that you have that something's not going to turn out quite right. It's that flash of fear you have when you're all tucked in bed at night, and your wife then leans over to you and says, honey, did you turn off the oven? You would think, wouldn't you, that life in the modern world with all of our affluence and all of our technology would do something to lessen the experience of anxiety. I mean, we live in a world where it almost doesn't make sense to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because when you go to the grocery store, you find they have two dozen different types of bread spread out over acres of store. And yet, if anything... All our comforts and all of our privileges of our affluent, technologically advanced world in which we find ourselves, particularly in the West and the United States, has appeared, if anything, to increase and not decrease anxiety. By all accounts, the United States is the most affluent and the most technologically advanced nation on planet Earth and in the history of the Earth. And yet, by most measures, the United States is also the world's most anxious 
nation. People in developing countries like Nigeria, for example, are, as they have studied these things, evidently five times less anxious than people in the United States. Some 40 million people in the United States have been diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder, which I think simply means that another 40 million are too anxious to go to the doctor. You'll notice, though, that Jesus, in our passage, he doesn't lecture his disciples on the psychological dynamics of anxiety, though those are real, or how different personality types are more prone to anxiety than others, though those are real, especially for Enneagram type sixes. I had to get that in there. Or how certain issues of brain chemistry impact the way we think about anxiety and process anxiety and deal with our own anxiety, all of which are real and valid issues. Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't lecture. He doesn't pontificate. He doesn't really even explain anxiety. What he does is he exhorts. He exhorts. Three times, in fact, Jesus tells his disciples, do not be anxious. Hard to miss the main point of the passage. Verse 25, look there. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Three times he exhorts his disciples, do not be anxious. Main point of the passage. What you notice is he doesn't just leave these exhortations hanging in thin air as preachers sometimes do without any support or substance or backbone. He supplies the support. You'll notice in the passage, look there in your passage, that all the fors and all the therefores, there is a, a kind of argument here in this passage. Jesus not just tossing out random thoughts about anxiety. Rather, this is a passage that is one tightly woven argument against anxiety. Actually, if you look closely at the passage, there are six arguments against anxiety in this passage. Let me give them to you very briefly. Verse 25, there's an argument there. Verse 26, there's another argument. Verse 27, verses 28 through 30, a fourth argument. Verses 21 and, or 31 and 32, a fifth argument, and verse 34, a sixth argument. Six arguments against anxiety, which makes me wonder, didn't Jesus take a homiletics class and learn that you shouldn't do six points in a sermon, but at the most three? Why give so many reasons against anxiety, like seemingly in rapid-fire succession? Why does Jesus do it this way? I thought about that for a little while, and then I thought about the nature of anxiety. And it made perfect sense. Why six and not two or three or one? Because I'm sure you figured out by now in your life, anxiety is a slippery animal. You ever tried to reason with your worries before? 
Just when you think you've got anxiety pinned on the mat with one good argument against anxiety, he, like anxiety, wiggles out and comes out and comes out from under your grasp and like comes at you from another direction and has you all of a sudden in another headlock. And so you talk back to your anxiety. You say, I'm not going to worry about that for this reason. Then two minutes later, you're worrying about it again for an entirely new reason. That's an elusive character, this thing we call anxiety. And so maybe there's something profound here about what Jesus is doing and helping us deal with anxiety, not with one or two arguments, but with a half a dozen. In rapid-fire succession, not simply, check it out, to silence the worry, but to pummel the worry to the ground. And so I see here real wisdom in what Jesus is doing, and I will say also real kindness. Jesus is being very kind to us with these six arguments against anxiety in this passage. I obviously am not going to be able to linger on each of the six arguments, otherwise some of you will anxiously worry whether the service will go too long. But let's take a brief look at each one of the six arguments, again, I hope, in brief. The first is there at the end of verse 25. Look there at the end of verse 25 for the first argument where Jesus says, this is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing. Argument number one. What is Jesus saying though? What's the argument against anxiety here? I think it goes like this. Do not be anxious because true life is more than material provision. True life is more than material provision. You know, I've been over at the YMCA and I've added biking to my swimming workout and so now I'm on the bike, but biking is exquisitely boring, even more boring than swimming. So I take my iPad in there and I've been watching documentaries to get a little education while I bike on the boring bike and I have been watching the BBC's marvelous little documentary series, Planet Earth. Have you seen this thing? This is amazing. Absolutely marvelous footage because they now get to use these drones and kind of like check out. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing footage of the most amazing animals doing the most amazing things like bamboo lemurs, coral reef snakes, or black-browed albatross of Madagascar. Amazing creatures. And yet really all they do is they eat. It's all they do. I mean, they propagate a little bit, but they mostly just eat. That's all they do. Because if you're an animal, your life consists in material provision. But human beings are so different. They are so gloriously different. Yes, we need food and clothing to live, but that's not the source of our life, Jesus is saying. Earlier in the gospel, you remember Jesus in Matthew's gospel, he says this, chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone. Need bread to live, but bread is not the source of your life. A reminder here to not worry because our life, true life, does not consist in the abundance of our material provision and possessions, but in our relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer. It's argument one, I think, in verse 25. Do not be anxious because true life is more than material 
provision. Take a look at the second argument there in verse 26 where Jesus says this, verse 26, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What's he saying? I think he's saying this. Do not be anxious because God cares for us on a daily basis. Take a look, Jesus says it, how God cares for birds and be encouraged with how God cares for birds. And what is the point of birds or about birds? Well, the point for Jesus is this as it relates with anxiety. Listen to this. Birds don't build barns. That's what Jesus says anyways. Look there, verse 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. What's he saying? He's saying that birds don't store up for what they need tomorrow. They rely upon daily provision every day. Birds don't have refrigerators. Birds don't have pantries. Birds don't have 401ks and save up for retirement. They don't do long-term planning. They don't stockpile provisions. They wake up every single morning, depending upon God for fresh provision. Each and every morning, they pray as it were, Lord, give us this day our daily bird seed. Right? What did I miss? It must have been good. It was an amen from back in the back from a small mouth is what I just heard there. (laughs) And yet birds, Jesus is saying, they seem to do okay in the world. Because God's mercies are new every morning. Great is the Lord's faithfulness to them. God renewing, God replenishing his world each and every day. God never takes a day off. God never closes for holiday. He always cares for his creatures, even the birds. How much more then? Well, they care for you and they care for me. We are much more valuable than birds. That's the second argument. God cares for us on a daily basis. Remember the birds. The third argument is there in verse 27. Look there, verse 27. It's a short and sweet, very direct and very to the point point, and the point is this. Verse 27, do not be anxious because anxiety doesn't solve anything. Listen to Jesus, verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Or let me put it this way, worry is worthless. It literally does no good. It cannot add anything to your life. If anything, anxiety will actually do the opposite. Science tells us that anxiety and stress can actually shorten life, not add to life. But besides, no one can worry their way into a better place, can they? Anxiety is not going to solve any of your problems. Anxiety is not going to protect your teenager from getting in a car accident or safeguard you from being laid off or even turn off the oven while you're tucked in bed. Anxiety is completely helpless to stop any of that stuff 
It is a kind of restless thinking, anxiety is, but it's an almost entirely unproductive thinking. That's what anxiety is. Better to think of anxiety as an unproductive thinking, as a kind of stewing on something. So maybe pause here to ask, what have you been stewing on these days? And how is it helping address the thing you're stewing on? Jesus here in verse 27, his third argument would remind us that worry is worthless. It's very unproductive. The fourth argument, Jesus says, is this, do not be anxious because God is lavish. God is lavish. Talked about birds earlier. Now, for this fourth argument, he's going to talk about flowers, lilies in particular. He illustrates with lilies and flowers this time. Look at verses 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Jesus asked his disciples. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, King Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? What's Jesus' point? I think it's basically this. God isn't miserly. God isn't stingy. When it comes to caring for his creation and his creatures, God is not on a tight budget. He's lavish in the way he takes care of even the grass of the field, the lilies of the field, despite the fact that lilies and grass are not going to be around very long. Here today, as Jesus says, gone tomorrow. And yet God doesn't see it as a waste of his resources to dress and adorn them in all kinds of splendor and beauty. Because God is far more generous than we imagine him to be. He's incredibly lavish and gracious with his creation. And how much more so then will he be gracious to you and me? I like the way Jesus puts it in the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 7, where he says this as an encouragement to pray, quote, in verse 11 of chapter 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. God takes lavish care of his creation, and how much more so the crown of his creation, human beings made in his image. Or like the way Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther put it, he said this, he said that the birds and flowers, quote, sing and preach to us and smile at us so lovingly just to have us believe. Have us believe in the generosity of of God, that God indeed is lavish. That's argument number four against anxiety. Here's argument number five against anxiety. It takes us to verses 31 and 32. Look there in your Bible, and it goes something like this. Do not be anxious because you know that God knows what you need. You know that God knows what you need. Jesus says it this way, verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
Here, Jesus is not talking about birds or flowers, but at this point in his argument, he's talking about Gentiles. He draws on Gentiles to make his point, and what's the point? Gentiles are those who, as the Apostle Paul says, are, quote, without God and without hope in the world. They do not know God. And because they do not know God, They have to rely entirely on their own efforts and energies to provide for themselves. They have no confidence that there's a lovingly heavenly father who knows them and who cares for them. The followers of Jesus are different, aren't they? We not only know God, check it out, here's the important thing, we know that God knows what we need. Remember Psalm 139? that wonderful celebration of God's intimate and exhaustive knowledge of who we are. If you have any doubts about God's exhaustive, intimate knowledge of who you are and what you need for flourishing in this life, hear these verses from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 5. O Lord, you have searched me, the psalmist says, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you Discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. God knows you. And you know that God knows you. And that he knows how to take care of you. You know this. And this knowledge, this confidence ought to quiet our anxiety because we know that God knows what we need. That's Jesus' fifth argument. The sixth and final argument is at the end of the passage. Look there, verse 34, where Jesus speaks, I will admit, very proverbially. You're not exactly sure what he's getting at, because he says this, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, verse 34. What's the point of that? I think the point is something like this. Stay present, like in the today, and be faithful in what God has for you today, and don't worry about tomorrow. It's not a call to ignore the future. It's not a call to be indulgent in the present. Christians of all people ought to be intensely future-oriented. We are eschatological people through and through. But Jesus is making a very practical point. He's saying this, essentially, don't try to live in tomorrow. Don't leave your body and the present up into your head and go into tomorrow. Our worrying today cannot change the reality of tomorrow, and tomorrow doesn't need you. Today needs you. Today needs you. And so stay present here in the today and be faithful in what God has for you. That's, I think, the sixth argument against anxiety. Six arguments against anxiety in this passage. Each in rapid-fire succession, 
Because I think Jesus knows that we need a rapid-fire succession of arguments against anxiety because anxiety is a very slippery animal. Just when you think you have it pinned to the mat, it slips away and comes back at you in a different direction and puts you in another headlock with another fresh reason to worry. Six arguments against anxiety. I hope that you've jotted these down along the way. They will fill your holster with these arguments. You can use them as you need to use them to help quiet our restless thinking and our worrying and indeed our anxiety. Six arguments against anxiety. But we would miss, I think, a hugely important point in this passage if we just stopped there with the arguments against anxiety because Jesus doesn't just give us arguments against anxiety. He also, you'll see, gives us an alternative to anxiety. And the alternative to anxiety is there at the end of the passage. Look there, verse 33, where he says, instead of anxiously worrying about your present or even your future, do this instead, Jesus says, quote, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That's the alternative to anxiety, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But what does it mean to seek first? You capture it in one word. Faith. Faith. Lift your eyes back up to verse 30. Notice the alternative to anxiety when Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 30, Oh, you of little faith. Faith for Jesus, of course, isn't mental assent to doctrinal truths like, yes, I believe this, yes, I believe this, yes, I believe this, mere mental cognitive assent to doctrinal truths. You don't have faith by simply believing or affirming certain things about God or Jesus in your head. That's not for Jesus, the Bible, that's not faith. For Jesus, faith is practical trust. It's daily reliance upon God for provision. It's the opposite of anxiety for precisely this reason. Practical trust for daily provision is the opposite of anxiety. And so notice this. Anxiety and faith tend to move in opposite directions in our lives. As anxiety rises, faith tends to sink. As faith rises, anxiety tends to sink. There is an inverse relationship between faith and anxiety. Which is why, check this out, for the Bible and for Jesus, The barometer of faith and the barometer of a lack of anxiety is your ability to do one very simple and very practical thing. Do you know what that is? I think someone said it. Sleep. Sleep. I love the way Psalm 127 puts it. A gentle But a wise rebuke that I know I need to hear, it goes like this. Verse 2 of Psalm 127, if you think I'm just kind of getting hyperbolic about sleep as the barometer of faith and the barometer of lack of anxiety for the Bible, this is what Psalm 127 verse 2 says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. 
for he gives to his beloved sleep. Or earlier in the Psalms, David connects faith, a lack of fear, freedom from worry, and yes, sleep. Though David's surrounded on all sides by his enemies who want to take his life, David says this, Psalm 3, verse 5, I lay down and slept. They're running around trying to kill me. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The capacity to sleep is the barometer of a practical trust. Or Psalm 4, David goes on, he says this, quote, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Give lots of other examples, but let me give you the greatest example in all the Bible of how sleep is an expression of a lack of anxiety and the fullness of faith, and it comes from the life of Jesus himself. Remember the famous story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples and the storm stirs up and the waves are crashing against the side of the boat and the water's coming into the boat and the the disciples are understandably worried because they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and it's pretty deep and it's pretty dark and it's pretty cold and I'm not sure how well they can swim, probably mostly doggy paddle, and so they're anxious and in fact they're freaking out. But what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. How? Wild. One of the greatest kind of ironic, weird things in all the Bible. And one of the most profound and practical things in all the Bible. He's acting like King David. Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety The Lord has me, Jesus says, so I'm going to take a little nap in the back of the boat. I don't need to worry. True confession, I've struggled for years to sleep well on Saturday nights, and I suspect you know the reason why Saturday nights. I often have trouble falling asleep, and then I have trouble staying asleep. And then when I want to stay asleep, like at three in the morning, I have trouble going back to sleep. Low-grade anxiety. Worry. Anxiousness. Sleep, though, is the barometer of a quiet and trusting heart. One that's free from worry, free from anxiety. He gives to his beloved sleep. Let me close with just a few very brief but very important qualifications. I wouldn't want to close this message without these qualifications. Let me just share a few qualifications and then we will go to the table together to share in the Lord's table. The first qualification perhaps goes without saying, but it is this. We want to be careful not to apply this passage to other people's lives in a patronizing way. What am I talking about? I'm talking about something like this. I lived and worked in, in college, when I was in college, in Calcutta, India for a month, and I saw some amazing poverty. And it would have been ridiculous for me to say to some of the children that were begging in the streets and begging from us, why are you begging? Don't worry about food. Just look at the birds. Remember, when Jesus saw the crowds without food, he had compassion on them. 
and he fed them. And so let's apply this passage rigorously to ourselves, and let's love those in genuine need by sharing whatever resources God has given us, not talking condescendingly down to them about their anxiety. Second, not all anxiety is an expression of a lack of faith. Please, some of you hear this. Not all anxiety is an expression of a lack of faith. For some of us, there is an anxiety that we cannot control. It's due not to a deficiency of faith, but arguably to a deficiency of brain chemistry. It's not moments of anxiousness like I might get, tend to focus on certain scenarios that I have in my mind, not moments of anxiousness. It is a whole mood of anxiety that is ever-present. If that's you, then don't hear this message as condemning you in your chronic condition. But perhaps it's an encouragement for you to seek, if you haven't already, some professional help. Because not all anxiety is an expression of a lack of faith. Third, wisdom isn't the same as worry. Wisdom isn't the same as worry. Wise planning and prudence about the future is not necessarily worry or anxiety. So planning your next business trip or planning for spring break or planning what you're going to have for dinner tonight, that's not necessarily anxiety or an expression of worry. It may very well be prudence and wisdom. There is a difference. You can plan anxiously or you can plan wisely, trusting God with prudence and not anxiety. Wisdom isn't necessarily the same as worry. Fourthly and finally, there is a difference between anxiety and agonizing over God's will for your life. Anxiety and agonizing over God's will for your life. One, anxiety is a vague worry about what could possibly happen to you, eats you up. The other agonizing over God's will, is a clear-eyed, sober-minded coming to terms with the cost of what God is calling you to. There is a difference between anxiety and agonizing over God's will. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he agonized so much that literal sweat drops were blood, his his blood was kind of sweating out. He was so agonizing over the will of God for his life. Looking from the outside, you might say, he looks pretty anxious there, prostrate in the Garden of Gethsemane. He looks real worried, but it wasn't anxiety and worry. Jesus wasn't worrying about his future. He was agonizing over the cost of doing God's will. It's a big difference. He was coming to terms with the depth of the sacrifice he was about to make on the cross for you and for me. He was coming to terms with having to give his own life so that you and I, we could find life and forgiveness and healing and redemption and peace. And so as we turn now to the table, brothers and sisters, the invitation to us from Jesus is simply this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, thank you for the kindness of this invitation. Thank you that there is a mystery in taking on your yoke, being a fellow yoked with you as our brother and our friend, our God and our Savior. Thank you that you invite us to roll our burdens off of our backs and onto you. Not just the burden of sin, but the burden of daily anxiety and worry. And thank you that you promise rest to us as we do that. And thank you that as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, you promise that all of these things shall be added unto us. As we come to the table now, Father, we want it to be a seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness for Jesus' sake. Whose name we pray, amen.